In 2014, uh, a new movie came out. It was called The Lego Movie. I remember when I first began to hear about The Lego Movie, I, I remember thinking, how good can this movie be? I mean, I grew up playing with Legos, but how are you going to make an entire movie about Legos? And then the reviews started to come in, and everybody was saying, this is a great movie. you got to see it. So we went, and we saw it in a the theater, and I loved it. I don't know if you've seen The Lego Movie or not, but I love the Lego movie. I thought it was so funny, so clever, so well done. And one of my favorite characters in the Lego movie was Good Cop, Bad Cop. And Good Cop, Bad Cop was this Lego character who, in one character, he played both roles of the good cop and the bad cop, and his head would spin. And in one moment, he would be the bad cop, and the next minute, he would be the good cop. Some of you are looking at me like you haven't seen the Lego movie. So, so, so let's, let's watch this clip. Maybe this will help you understand Good Cop, Bad Cop. Plan dumb, master builder. No, I master builder. Oh, so you've never heard of the prophecy? No, I, or the special? No, no, I'm a liar. Look here, Look, um, I watch a lot of cop shows on TV. Isn't there supposed to also be a? Isn't there supposed to be a good cop? Oh yes, but we are not done yet. Hi, buddy. I'm your friendly neighborhood police officer. Would you like a glass of water? Yeah, yeah, actually. That's Too bad. <laughs> good cop, bad cop. If you're a parent, you're an expert at being good cop, bad cop with your kids. When you read the book of Micah, this prophet who lived in the southern kingdom of Judah, it can seem like he's playing good cop, bad cop. When you read through these seven chapters, he seems almost like he doesn't, can't make up his mind. One minute he's saying, I'm going to judge you. The next minute says, I love you. One minute he's going to say, he says, I'm going to, you're going to be in exile. And the next minute he's saying, we're going to welcome you and return you back home. The theme of Micah is judgment and forgiveness. And, and the book just kind of goes back and forth between the judgment that God is saying is going to come on the southern tribes of Judah and the northern tribes of Israel, but also the forgiveness that he's offering them at the same time. What we see is that the Lord is a judge who scatters his people for their transgressions and their sins, but at the same time, good cop, bad cop, he's also the shepherd king who in covenant faithfulness, he gathers them, he protects them, and he forgives them. And Micah wrote this book in order to bring God's lawsuit against his people. There's a lot of legal language in the book of Micah. He indicts Samaria and Jerusalem, Samaria being where they worshiped God in the northern kingdom and Jerusalem being where they worshiped God in the southern kingdom of Judah. And he indicts both Israel and Judah for their sins. And the punishment that he sort of holds over their head and says is coming is that Assyria and Babylon are coming to destroy them and to drag them off into exile. They're going to lose their land. They're going to lose their identity. They're going to lose their religion. And in the book of Micah, he highlights specific sins of both the northern and the southern kingdoms. And let me just give you a quick crash course on what some of these sins were. The sin of idolatry which is choosing another God over Yahweh. It's really spiritual adultery. It's breaking a covenant relationship between the people of God and God and saying we want to give our hearts to something else. Idolatry, spiritual adultery. There also was a failure of civic governmental leadership. They were supposed to hate evil and love good, but they hated good and they loved evil. In fact, at this time that Micah was prophesying, the king in the southern kingdoms, his name was Ahaz, and Ahaz was really a puppet for Assyria. What happened was Syria and Israel joined forces and said to Judah, the king of Judah, Ahaz, hey, fight with us against Assyria. And Ahaz didn't want to do that. And so they were going to invade Judah to get Ahaz off the throne because they wanted Judah to, to join forces with them to fight against Assyria. 
And so Ahaz, he now aligns not with Syria and Israel, he aligns with Assyria. And so they work together to fight off Israel and Syria. It's an ugly, bloody war. And even though Ahaz gets to stay on the throne, he actually becomes a puppet king who Assyria controls, and he has to do what they tell him to do. So there's the failure in civic governmental leadership. There's also a failure in religious leadership and prophetic leadership. Here's what's happening back then. The religious leaders who are supposed to be doing things for the good of the people are doing things for their own good. They're lovers of themselves and lovers of personal benefit and profit and gain. They have no integrity. And the prophets in that day who are supposed to speak for God are not speaking for God. They're saying what they think people want to hear. This is all happening. There's also other sins that Micah holds them accountable for. Micah, like the prophet Amos, speaks often about the lack of justice and care. They're seizing the property of the poor. They're exploiting the poor, even though the law says that if the land belongs to the family and has belonged to the family for a long time, no one should take that land. They're taking the land from the poor, and there was corrupt business practices and violations. And so into this corrupt, evil, sinful world comes Micah playing good cop, bad cop, saying God is here to destroy you and punish you, but also God loves you, and he has a plan for your life. We don't know a lot about Micah. He lived in Judah, uh, south of Jerusalem. He prophesied to both kingdoms, which is a little unique. A lot of the prophets only prophesied to one. But one thing that we know about Micah that's really important is we know what his name means. And Micah's name means who is like Yahweh. Who is like Yahweh? Who is, so everywhere he went, his very name, his very presence presented this question to the people. You're serving these gods, but who is like our God? You're living this way, but who is like the God who tells us to live this way? In fact, we'll see later in chapter 7, right as he's summarizing his, his letter, his prophecy, he asks them the question, who is like our God? Who is like Yahweh? And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to answer that question. I want to say, who is like this God, or what kind of God is this? And there's two things that we learn about God in the book of Micah that's so important for us to wrap our minds and our hearts and our lives around. So the first thing that we learn about God is this. That this God is the God who pleads to you. This God is the God who pleads to you. Let's read um, Malachi or Micah chapter 6. I want to read to you verses 1 through 5. It'll be on the screen for you. It's also in your handout. It says this. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you, mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Here's the legal language. Verse 3, God begins to speak. He's making his case. He's pleading to them. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and I redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, these incredible leaders, O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. We'll talk about that later. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. He's saying, here's all the things that I've done. Why are you tired of me? Why are you weary of me? Why are you turning from me? And now in verse 6, it changes, and here's Judah's reply. Well, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? They're saying, how, do I, how should I approach you? Shall I come before with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? 
Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then here's Micah's reply. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? What we have in Micah chapter 6 is a legal procedure. God calls witnesses. He calls the hills and the mountains. He calls creation. He says, hey, creation, pay attention. You've witnessed everything. Now stand as witness in this legal procedure. And what's interesting about this legal procedure is that God is the defendant. He's the one who's been sinned against. God is the prosecutor. He's the one who's bringing the argument. And God is the judge and the jury. That wouldn't fly in our country, right? That's a little too much bias on one side. But God is the defendant, God is the prosecutor, and God is also the judge and the jury. He has all the power and all the control. And what's amazing is that when you notice this, that God has all the power, that God has all control, that God is 100% in charge, what's amazing to me is that he pleads with him. He pleads with him. Sometimes my girls, especially after church on Sundays, as soon as service is over, they find me and they ask me, can we go out to eat? They love to go out to eat, just like their daddy. They, they, they love to go out to eat. And one of their favorite places is Francesca's in the village of Liverpool, because Lily, my oldest, loves their wings, and Caroline loves their pizza, and I love their Utica greens. So a lot of times, it doesn't, to be, to be honest, it doesn't take a lot of pleading. Usually I'm hoping that they will come ask, so that, so that I can say to my wife, well, you know, I mean, they asked. I, I'd rather just fast this afternoon, but they asked, so... so. But sometimes we can't go or I don't want to go or it's just not in the budget to go. And, but they'll keep pleading. You know how kids are. They just keep asking and asking and pleading and pleading. And the reason that they're pleading is because they're, the outcome is 100% in my hands. I'm the one who gets to make the choice. Now, every now and then, I want to go out to eat. Maybe we just want a night off from cooking or we got a gift card or something. I want to, I want to go out to eat. I don't plead with my daughters. I don't say to them, Lilia, Caroline, Madeline, please, can we go out to eat tonight? Please, please, can we go? Why? Because I have the power. I have the control. If you have all the power, you don't plead. You just tell people. You just command things. You just make things happen. But look at God here. He has all the power. He has all the control. But he's so humble. He's so loving. He's so kind. He's so patient. He's so gracious that he pleads with his people. Could you hear the emotion in what he was saying? It wasn't as striking when he said, what have I done to you? What do you have? This is like when your relationships begin to fall apart with somebody, you go to them and say, what did I do to make you so upset with me? Why are you so angry with me? Why is our relationship falling apart? This is what God's doing. He's taking the position of humility and he's pleading to his people, please, what's going on? What have I done? How have I wearied you? Why are you tired of me? Why don't you love me? He's pleading to them. It reminds me of a story that Jesus told in the New Testament many years later in Luke 15 where there's a son who's taken his, his inheritance and he's squandered everything and he's wasted everything and he's run away and he begins to limp home thinking maybe he can buy his way back into the family. And when the father sees him from far away, it says that the father runs to him, which in the ancient Near Eastern culture at this time, men didn't run. In order to run, they'd have to pull their robes up and bare their legs and it was not a good social etiquette. They wouldn't humble themselves that way. But this man was so happy to see his son returning home that he ran to him, and when he ran to him, he wrapped his arms around him, and he loved him, and he kissed him, and he said, you're home, you're home. That sort of humility, what he should have done, what the father should have done in that story, is he should have stood there on the porch and watched his son take every miserable step all the way back home. And the whole time in his head thinking, I knew this would happen. 
I told you this happened. Now grovel at my feet and beg your way back in. Aren't you glad that's not the God that we serve? You don't have to come begging and groveling at his feet and saying, would you pay attention to me? Would you hear my prayer? Would you consider me? He's pleading to you this morning. He's saying, what have I done to cause you not to love me and trust? And what's interesting is that when you study this passage, God's pleading with Judah and Israel is based on two things, who he is and what he's done. He said, he reminded them of very important things that he had done, the deliverance from Exodus. I brought you out of Egypt. I provided you with great leaders, with Moses, with Aaron, with Miriam. I protected you. You know that story about Balaam and Balak? I said we would get back to it. What happened was a king tried to pay off a prophet to curse God's people. But God wouldn't allow it to happen. And the Balaam, who was supposed to curse God's people, ended up blessing God's people. And here's what God's saying. I did that. When there was a curse coming your way, I intervened and I made sure that you received the blessing. And then he talked about, I led you from Shittim to Gilgal. What is that? That's the journey that Joshua, the great leader after Moses, led Israel across the Jordan River from Shittim to the camp on the other side, which was Gilgal, which is God is saying, I kept my promises to you. I told you I would bring you into a land that I have for you, and I did that. I've done, God is making his legal case saying, here's all the things I've done for you, and you have turned your back on me. You loved other gods. You've pursued other things. You've forgotten what it means to love others. And he's pleading to them. Now let me ask you this this morning. How is God pleading to you this morning? How is he pleading to you? What truths about God have you possibly forgotten that are affecting your emotions, your attitudes, your decisions? What about who he is and what he's done is no longer informing the way you live, is no longer informing the way you feel? And this morning, I think that God is pleading to you, and here's his plead, remember who I am and what I've done. Remember my faithfulness to you, that not for a moment have I forgotten you. Not for a moment have I turned away from you. Remember my love for you. Remember how committed I am to seeing you become like my son, Jesus. Remember my patience when you don't get it right, when you choose other gods, when you're not just to other people, when you're selfish, when you're self-centered, when you're short-tempered, when you don't get it right. Remember my patience with you. Remember my plan for you. Remember the promises that I've spoken to you in the word and through teaching and through the prophetic and remember the victory that I won for you. Here's what God is pleading to us this morning. Remember me and remember what I've done. And what we have here is interesting. Like I said, it's a legal procedure. And in the first five verses, God is asking a question. He's saying basically this, what have I done to lose your love? What have I done to lose your approval? What have I done to lose your acceptance? And the answer is nothing. And then when Judah replies, they ask actually a very similar question. Here's the question they ask, what can I do to secure your love? What can I do to secure your approval? What can I do to secure your acceptance? And the truth is, is a lot of us who are religious and go to church, we're still asking that same question in our hearts. We still wonder, God, how do I earn your love? How do I earn your approval? How do I earn your acceptance? How can my heart experience peace? How can I know that I'm right with you? How can I know that when my time comes, I will enter into eternity with you? What can I do? And the irony is this. The answer to both questions is the same. Nothing. There's nothing you can do. Let me explain. They said, what can I bring before you, Lord? What should I bring? 
What allows me to approach you? What gives me the right? What makes me right, God? How can I please you? And then they list off things. How about burnt offerings? That's what they say first, which was the standard offering of that day. How about I just do what you've asked me to do? Keep the rules. Then they begin to ratchet it up. Did you notice how it got bigger and bigger? Standard offerings. Then it was a valuable one-year-old calf, the most, the most prized age for a cow, one years old, valuable young calf. Then they said, what, what do you want from us, God? Thousands of animals? Tens of thousands of rivers of oil? And everybody knew at this time that only a king could do that. Solomon did that actually in 1 Kings 8.63. He brought thousands of animals and sacrificed them before the Lord. But no average person can do that. So in their head, they're actually, they're actually beginning to make it sound like God requires things that are unreasonable. God requires things that we can't give. God's a hard taskmaster. And then the last thing they say is so shocking. They say, should I kill my firstborn child? Should I sacrifice? Now this is rhetorical only. God forbid human sacrifice. They knew God did not want this, but the firstborn child was the most valuable thing they could think of to show the extreme. And basically, here's what the people of Judah are asking, and I think sometimes we ask the same question. Listen, what extravagant, over-the-top, costly, religious thing can I do, can I do to please you, God, so that I can then go live my life however I want? Let me say that again. What sort of religious activity, what sort of over-the-top, extravagant religious activity can I do to please you so that then you'll let me go live my life however I want? I've done enough, and now I can go live my life. There's a, there's a scholar that studies the Old Testament. His name is John Walton. He points out something really interesting. He says, in the ancient Near East, Near East, here's his quote. I'll read it, and then I'll explain it. Primary obligation to the God was seen in the cultic realm and not in the ethical or moral realm, because gods didn't care so much how you lived your life as long as you did your religious duty. That's what he's saying. In most other religions at that time surrounding Israel, in all these pagan religions, their gods didn't care how they lived. Their gods didn't care if they told the truth. Their gods didn't care if they loved their neighbors. Their gods didn't care what they did with their finances and their wealth. All their gods wanted was for them to do their religious activity every week, to show up and to make their sacrifice and to pray their prayers. And as long as they prayed their prayers and showed up and did their things, then they could live the rest of their life however they wanted. And along comes Yahweh, the Hebrew God, and he's so different because, yes, there are things that they brought before him in sacrifice and in religious activity, but God cared very much about their morals about their ethics, about how they lived, and about how they treated other people. And the people of Judah were treating God like he was some lesser God who didn't know and didn't care. Now, what might this look like today for you and me to approach God this way? I wrote down some examples. Maybe you come to church and you say, I'm willing to show up on Sunday and give my 75 minutes, but don't tell me what to do with my time the rest of my, the week. I'm willing to do this, but don't, don't, this shouldn't cost me anything else. I've done my time. I've checked off the list. Now the rest of the week is my time to live for my kingdom and do what I want. Maybe, uh, maybe it sounds like this. Yeah, I'll come into church and I'll stand with everybody else and I'll sing these songs and I'll sing these songs of praise. But then when I'm, the rest of my week, I'll use the same mouth to use words that tear people down, to gossip, to slander. But it's okay, because I sang on Sunday. I, I did my part. Maybe it's this, I'll, I'll give my money on Sunday, I'll give my, for those of you that, that give the tithe, I'll give my 10%, but, but don't tell me that I have to honor God with the rest of my money, I'll, I'll, I'll honor myself. I, he doesn't have any say over that. 
Maybe it's, I'll read my scriptures every day. I'm very faithful with my devotions. Every morning I get up and I read my Bible and I pray, but don't tell me to know who my neighbor is. And don't tell me to love my neighbor. And don't tell me to serve my community because that's, I did my part. Maybe it's, I've lived a moral life, so I shouldn't have to worry about issues of injustice in our community and in our country. Or I greet people on Sunday morning when, the, when Jared this morning said, hey, take a minute and greet each other. I, I shook up five hands. I hope Pastor noticed. I shook five hands this week. It was amazing. But I won't, I won't actually get to know them, get to know their story, invite them into my life, invite them into my home. I'm just giving you examples. You don't have to feel guilty about it. I'm just giving examples. I'm just giving examples of possibilities of how this might look like today. I've done my religious duty. God, you really, man, you should really be happy with that. And Micah's bringing them to task on this. And Micah says, hey, you're, you're asking, what, what do I do to please God? He's saying, I, God already told you. And we get to this really famous verse, right? You've probably heard this before, where it says, the God already told you what's required to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What does do justice mean? Do justice means to treat others with fairness. Back then, it meant to treat others with fairness in accordance with the Mosaic Law. And it carried with it an obligation to provide for the poor. In other words, if you're doing justice, it means you're not living for yourself. You're living for others. You're meeting the needs of people in your community. We talked about this a couple weeks ago with Amos. What does it mean to love kindness? To love kindness means to have a loyal commitment, not just to God, but to others. You know, in 1 John 4.20, it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. How many of you wish that verse wasn't in the Bible? How many of you are not thankful for that verse this morning? That's a challenging verse, isn't it? By the way, we can't do this without God's grace. We'll talk more about that at the end of this message, but you can't do this in your own strength. You need something supernatural working in you if you're gonna love people who are hard to love. But this is what it means to love kindness, to have a life that's committed to loving people who are hard to love. How many of you are glad that God loves you even though at times you're hard to love? You're hard to love. Do justice, love kindness, and then lastly, walk humbly with your God. You know what it means to walk humbly with your God? It means realizing that every step you take is because of his grace and his mercy. There's not a thing that you can do in your own strength. There's not a thing you can do in your own might or in your own power, but you walk humbly with your God, surrendered to the Spirit, and not presuming upon God's grace as if it's licensed to sin and live however you want, but thankful for God's grace because it's the power to do right. It can sound like bad news that Micah gives them this list of things to do, but here, it's actually good news. It's a reminder. Micah's saying, here's another chance. Instead of a formal judgment of a sentence, which is, which is what should have happened at the end of this chapter, it's a call to repent. There's another chance, because this is the God who pleads to you wherever you are. The second thing that we see in Micah is this, that not only is he the God who pleads to you, but he's also the God who pleads for you. The God who pleads for you. Let's go to Micah chapter 7. I want to read to you two verses, 18 and 19. And it says this. I love this. This is the end of Micah, 18, 19, and 20. Who is a God like you? Remember, that's verse, verse 18. Who is a God like you? Remember, that's Micah's name. That's Micah's name. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. I actually think that I don't have this on the screens for you. So just listen. Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. 
He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You, you, God, you will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. I love this because Micah, after a whole seven chapters of being bad cop, good cop, God's going to judge you, God's going to forgive you. He ends with this at the end of chapter seven, and he asks the question that his name is a constant reminder to the people of, who is a God like you? He's basically saying, there's no one like you, God. We can search the whole world over. There's no one like this God. Why? Because he pardons our sins, and he passes over our iniquities, and he has compassion upon us. He does not stay angry forever. He releases his laugh, his wrath. He delights in loving us. He will tread our sins underfoot, and he will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. I love this. He turns from his anger. He delights in love. He has compassion. He defeats our sin. And he crushes our sin. And he casts our sin far from us. Now we have to ask a question at this point. How can God crush sin and not also crush all the sinners? How can God crush the sin that's in us and have compassion on us and not crush us? How can God cast our sins into the depths of the sea and not cast us into the depths of the sea at the same time? In other words, how can he destroy sin and not destroy sinners? And the answer was in the verses that we read. It said in verse 18 that he passes over transgressions for the remnants of his inheritance, for those who truly belong to him. He passes over their sins. And I can assure you that when Judah saw those words, that he passes over, it would have reminded them of something many, many years ago. When the people of Israel were in Egyptian slavery for 400 years, they cried out to God. They were the ones pleading. They pleaded to God, and God heard them, and he rose up a deliverer named Moses. And he sent Moses, and most of you are probably familiar with this story. Moses against Pharaoh. And one at a time, God begins to send plagues on Egypt, begins to show his power over their gods. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And Pharaoh still will not let the people go. And finally, it's the last plague. And God says to Moses, I'm going to send the angel of death. He's, the angel of death is going to come through Egypt. And the firstborn of every, the firstborn male of every family is going to die. But here's how you can be saved. Here's how you can be saved. And he gives them very specific instructions about sacrificing a lamb and shedding the blood of a lamb, and then taking the blood of that lamb and applying it with like a paintbrush to the doorpost of their house. And what happened that night was the angel of death came through the land of Egypt. And every house that didn't have the blood of the lamb applied to the doorpost, the firstborn male in that house lost their life. But every house that had the blood applied to the doorposts, the angel of death passed over their house. And so God was able to judge sin, but save the people who belonged to him. The Passover story was a powerful reminder for the Hebrews to this day of what God did, not just to rescue them out of Egyptian slavery, but what he did in the person and work of Jesus Christ to rescue all of us. Because Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb. He's the, he's the true lamb. 
He's the one, he's the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. It's his sacrifice that speaks for all of us. It's his blood applied to our lives that makes us right before the Father. And so as we trust in what Jesus did, going to the cross and paying the price for our sins, ransoming, ransoming us from, from, from our sickness and from our sin and defeating sin, Satan, hell, death, and the grave, when we, allow, when we put our trust in the blood of Jesus and what he did for us, and so to speak, we apply it to the doorpost of our heart, he passes over our transgressions. He passes, passes over our sins. He pardons us. He forgives us. It's not because of what we brought in our hand. It's not, God, I brought you a burnt offering. I brought you a one-year-old calf. God, I brought you thousands of animals, thousands of rivers of oil. I brought you my firstborn child. God's saying, no, I gave you my firstborn child. Because of what he did in his work, he passes over. And here's what it means. The God whose heart pleads to you is the God whose blood pleads for you. The God whose heart pleads to you. Do you remember who I am? Do you know how much I love you? Do you know how good my plans are for you? Do you know how faithful I am? Do you know how much better I am than all the other things you've been looking to? Do you know how much I have for you? The God, who ple the God whose heart pleads to you is the God whose blood pleads for you. And Jesus' blood cries out mercy, grace, forgiveness over you. And at the cross, the mercy of God and the justice of God collided together. And Jesus got the judgment and the justice, and we receive the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness so that our sins can be pardoned and that sin, God can put his very foot on our sin. The cross is the answer. The cross is how God destroyed sin, but did not destroy sinners because Jesus became a sinner in our place to take the punishment that we deserved. And here's one way to understand the gospel that I love so much. The gospel says this, that what God required, God also provided. He required a perfect, sinless sacrifice and a perfect, sinless, righteous life. Guess what? You and I can't bring it to him. We can try over and over and over, and we do. We're, we get very religious. We try really hard to impress God. We can't do it. But the very thing that God required, he provided for us in the person and work of Jesus. The God who pleads to you is the God who pleads for you. Let's pray this morning.